This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Our friends over at AMI-audio continue to offer up incredible reading programs, including McLean's Magazine that airs Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Don Dickinson is the producer of that program and is here to tell you about a couple of this week's articles. Hey, good morning, Don. Hey, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. And Don, you've got a couple of really interesting articles this week. The first one is titled A Doctor's Dilemma by Christy Herring. In this piece, Herring describes her job as a family physician in a small town of British Columbia. So she says it's a dream come true, but also nearly impossible to do. Why is that the case? Well, this uh, this was startling to me, you know. I, I had no idea that um, doctors, uh, particularly in BC, are under such stress. She says nearly one in five British Columbians, close to a million people, are now without a family doctor. Some walk-in clinics, which previously provided a safety net um, to people who didn't have a family doctor, have been shuttered during the pandemic, in part because there isn't enough physicians to staff them, and also due to rising costs and a lack of government support. British Columbia's descent into primary care crisis is part of a much larger trend across Canada. In 2019, there were approximately 4.6 million Canadians without regular health care providers. That's a startling figure, Dave. That's done. In fact, it's so startling. Give it to us one more time. In 2019, there were approximately 4.6 million Canadians without regular health care providers. That's well over 10% of the population, a significant, significant number. So, Don, I imagine part of this is a shortage in doctors themselves. So why are family physicians opting out of the system? Well, although family medicine is the bedrock, as she explains it, of the healthcare system, family doctors are among the lowest paid physicians. And with the rapidly increasing cost of education and running a family practice, fewer and fewer can afford to choose this specialty. Now, one of the figures that came up in the article that just absolutely blew me away was she had stated that in the BC government pays family doctors $31.62 for the average visit. Now, I had a visit, believe it or not, a phone visit with a, with my endocrinologist yesterday. Uh, I have diabetes, and we were talking about my, my sugar levels and everything. And after I got off the phone, um, my partner said, oh, well, you know, that was probably a couple hundred dollars for him for that five or ten minute uh, consult. And I thought, hmm, let's look this up. And then, of course, I read this a bit of this uh, uh, article and I thought, wow, people are really under a misconception about how much these doctors are being paid by the government. And when you think about the fact that a third of that goes to may- maybe their administration costs and their staff or whatever, and then a third of that goes to deductions, they're left with a third of that. Yeah, it's it's pretty stunning. Uh, and you consider the workload that is being put upon people who are already dealing with a staff shortage and a lot of people needing acute help in moments from family doctors. It really adds to a lot of pressure to the scenario as well. You can't just have doctors brushing people off or else they're not doing 
their due diligence. Don, you mentioned the bureaucratic side of this, a lot of the cost side of this. I know this mm-hmm. article was more about a rural community in British Columbia, but I know talking to a few of my doctor friends in Toronto who have considered family practice, the cost of starting up a practice and the amount of time you spend not actually treating patients is tremendous. So what role does administration and paperwork play in a physician's day? It's a huge role, a huge role, Dave. Paperwork is the bane of family doctors' existence, slowly crushing um, the day because there's so much to do other than just see patients. This part of the workload disproportionately affects female physicians, believe it or not. American research... uh, Analyzing the time spent by doctors on electronic medical records found that regardless of the number of patients in their practice, female physicians receive approximately 25% more messages from staff and patients and have to spend at least 20% more time dealing with their inboxes and follow-up notes from their patients. More paperwork is uncompensated and includes all manner of tasks, charting, checking labs, reviewing imaging, requesting consults, reading special specialist report, filling out forms, researching uh, all kinds of, uh, 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 you know, like uh, diseases and whatnot, dealing with uh, pharmacist queries, uh, speaking to home care nurses, and, and discussing cases that can't wait with specialists. When you think of all of that on top of the fact that, you know, they have to actually see patients, it's a lot of work. And females are, 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 are you know, carrying the burden. Yeah, female there's, doctors. There's there's something fundamentally not right with the way that our healthcare system is working right now because we're understaffed in basically every area, whether it be family mm-hmm. doctors, whether it be specialists, whether it be nurses, whether it be anybody offering frontline care. Even, even custodial care in hospitals are understaffed right now because of the pressure within the system. And this speaks to what's been a generational neglect. As the population of Canada has grown by about 6 million in the last 20 years, our med schools and our training facilities have not kept up with the adequate production. And we definitely did not take a look at the actual population bomb that was about to explode that was uh-huh. people in their 60s retiring, especially people in successful professions like doctors who at 61 or 62 might say, you know what, I've got cash in the bank. I don't need to do this till I'm 70 or 75. So now we find ourselves with not enough graduates coming out of med school, an onerous process, a financial burden to go to med school. Don, this situation, although this story is really, it starts from an individual perspective and offers up some of that research, it speaks to a fundamental broken system here. And we have to be really clear about this. With a lot of the deficits that were run during COVID, a lot of politicians are going to start talking about austerity when what our healthcare system needs is actually significant, significant investments. Yes, yes, exactly. It, yeah, a, an infusion of cash, if anything. Um, we we really need to deal with this because, as you say, the boomers are booming and they're booming big time. And this doesn't take into account all the specialized cases uh, for the dis- disabled, right? These are just, most of these calls are just um, your average calls that the doctors are dealing with, you know, like lacerations or, or, or falls or, or colds or yeah, things like that, yeah. right? Then when you get into all 
handle the really more involved and intricate cases, like dealing with people with disabilities, it's a whole different ballgame. Those doctors have to spend substantially more time. And to my point earlier, when I was speaking to my endocrinologist yesterday and mentioned a side effect of one of the particular things that I was taking for my diabetes, uh, he said, oh, well, I don't really want to deal with that. You should speak to your family doctor. And I thought, wow, like here, here's the fellow who is the specialist in the field. Not that I'm, I'm, I'm saying that he, that was inappropriate. Uh, maybe it, it, well, obviously it is something that I have to speak to family doctor. But then I thought, well, then where is the load being shifted once again? That's right. You're just, you're just playing musical chairs as opposed to actually trying to offer up the resources that people need, especially when you're talking about things like, like administration work. Certainly mm-hmm. the administration work and paper trails are important, right? This is important work, but why aren't we creating scenarios and, and incentives to actually have people working in this bureaucracy at the at the sort of more core patient level? Last time I was at a hospital, I encountered way more administrators than I did actual frontline caregivers and frontline carers. And it really got me thinking, OK, if there's this many people on the support side, how is this not trickling down to more private practice? Well, very much so, Dave, because we have a we have two people, two family members right now that are dealing with uh, situations in hospital beds, and the the visits that we have had with them, there's really no well, I shouldn't say no, that's unfair. There there's very little of the old what you would think of as the old bedside manner nursing anymore, mainly because the nurses just don't have the time. No, they don't. Uh, the the nurses are filling in so many different forms, uh, backing up all the decisions that the doctors have made, documenting everything that has been done. And I mean, I, you know, obviously this has to be done to some degree, but maybe we've carried it to an extreme because, you know, if, if a doctor has to spend that much time doing the paperwork or nurses have to spend that much time, how much real hands-on bedside care? Yeah. Is the patient yeah. getting? You're losing sight of the, like we're losing sight of the actual purpose of healthcare uh, because we've over bureaucratized these things. Don, uh, before we get ourselves in trouble, let's pivot off this and move <laughs> to something that's a little bit of lighter fare. I would suggest the second article is a feature interview with Moshe Safdi, a world-renowned architect who has a new memoir coming out in October called "If Walls Could Speak: My Life in Architecture." In case you might be wondering why the name is familiar, Safdi is famous for many buildings, including the house. Housing complex Habitat 67 in Montreal. So Safdie describes some new architectural wisdom that has emerged from the pandemic. So what's the scoop on this one? What did he describe? Well, you know, uh, the pandemic changed the world, obviously, changed professions and everything. One of the interesting post-COVID ideas uh, in architecture is that high-rise residential buildings should almost always be mandated to have outdoor spaces. I thought this, of course, is brilliant, right? Uh, Balconies, terraces, and often communal open areas. Uh, He is stating that they have to integrate nature and plant life into every single solitary building. It costs so much more to achieve a quality of life at high densities like in Hong Kong or um, uh, places like Midtown uh, Manhattan. Uh, the extremes we go to to make uh, this possible, uh, you know, it, it, we, we, we could do it much better. That's what he's saying. We don't have to, 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 to uh, fundamentally change everything. We have to just institute certain things that allow buildings to incorporate these outdoor spaces. Rooftop gardens, 
back gardens, mm-hmm. patios, Simple. little park areas that can be mandated in building code. If you're going to build a new building, this must include a park. It has to include parking spaces, green spaces, plant. It's not just concrete and glass anymore. We need to get a little greenery in there. We've talked about that before, Don. How would Safdie describe a building as ugly? What constitutes an ugly building? <laughs> well, of course, he's very opinionated on this. He said, uh, when I analyze what's ugly, most of it comes from the building being detrimental to the quality of life for the people that are living within it. Take a black glass tower going up 100 floors in the middle of Dubai, the hottest place in the world. Who in the world, he said, would have uh, uh, gone along with that? A black tower. It sits there in the baking desert sun, so it ends up being very non-livable and very ugly. So he's not partial to just plain boxes that don't make life livable. And that, of course, harkens back to our earlier point about you have to have spaces that are making the people feel good. It's not just what what the building looks like. Mm-hmm. What's his take on modern architecture that's going up in Canada? Well, he's mixed on this. Uh, Basically, he's saying the level of architectural adventure in Canada and the propensity of developers to go out of the box is extremely limited. Um, Not great. (laughs) You see a few little things happening in Vancouver. He says fewer in Toronto and almost none in Montreal. But a few projects have taken some chances. He said that he he cites the Frank... um, Geary, a complex going up in Toronto as being exceptional. There's also that twisted building, he says, in Vancouver, uh, 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 sorry, uh, Vancouver House. Um, He says he's not personally fond of it, but it is a tour de force of architecture. And he said, you know, it has to be a blend of both. It has to be adventurous in the sense of design, but it also has to be functional. So, makes sense. That does make sense to me. Don, thank you for offering up this preview. We appreciate it. You're very welcome, Dave. That's Don Dickinson talking about our reading program, McLean's Magazine, which you can find Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio that repeats throughout the week. But the initial airing is Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.